and welcome to Queer Crime, episode number 26. I'm your host, Patrick. Advance warning. This episode contains details of a violent crime. Listen at your own discretion. It's 1977, and the gay high holy calendar was filled with marvels that year. Best musical at the Tonys was Annie. Outstanding comedy series at the Emmys was Mary Tyler Moore. Song of the Year at the Grammys was I Write the Songs, performed by Barry Manilow. And Best Picture at the Oscars was Rocky. Everyone knows the 1969 romantic comedy musical called Hello Dolly, which features uber-gay icon Barbra Streisand. The Hello Dolly movie, which was originally based on the 1964 Broadway hit of the same name, was nominated for seven Academy Awards and actually won three. Best Art Direction, Best Score of a Musical and Best Sound. This joyous camp movie, with its catchy tunes and long-lasting legacy of frivolity and fun, also has a horrible queer crime story attached to it, which has been almost entirely forgotten. I must admit, I didn't know much about this story until it was brought to my attention by fan of the show, Stan, in Vancouver. Or should I say, Stan of the show. Am I too old to get away with saying Stan instead of fan? I suspect so. Either way, thanks for alerting me to this one, Stan. It was a really good story to research. The story starts out with Jean and Joe Locken. Jean and Joe had a pretty typical story in terms of how their relationship evolved. They met, fell in love, got married and had a kid. But if I skimmed on the details, my episodes would be over in about three minutes. Having spent his childhood in Iowa, and after high school, Joe decided to spread his horizons by enrolling at the University of California. Jean, on the other hand, spent her childhood in Nebraska, and when she graduated high school, she hot-footed her way to New York City, where she got a job as a dancer. Dancing had been Jean's passion since childhood, so she was delighted to have got a job doing what she loved, a job dancing on stage, even though this dancing job focused on the vaudeville era, which was rapidly dying out. The vaudeville era came from vaudeville, which was a theatrical form of entertainment which had originated in France at the end of the 1800s. When vaudeville migrated to America, it became a type of variety show where a few separate acts who were entirely unconnected performed together on stage, and these acts were usually listed on the same playbill. The list of vaudeville performers could include comedians, magicians, acrobats, actors, singers and dancers. It was a real mishmash of entertainment, similar to the type of shit that Simon Cowell continues to peddle on his reality shows. Despite its huge popularity when it first came to America, Vaudeville started to decline considerably with the emergence of a new type of entertainment, the movies. As movie theatres started popping up everywhere, and going to the movies became more accessible, it soon became apparent that movies were the death knell of the vaudeville shows, and with the decline in ticket sales, entertainers who didn't get a break in the movies were out of a job. Unfortunately, this included Jean. After two years of dancing on stage in New York City, she was unemployed amongst the myriad other dancers so she packed up her belongings and she went to live with her brother in Iowa. Jean's considerable experience and her continued love of dancing was enough to secure her teaching jobs at two dance schools. As she started carving out a life for herself in Iowa, she met Joe who had returned from university to his home state and they fell in love. After university, Joe worked for Dole Food Company, which is still well known today as it remains the largest producer of fruit and vegetables in the world. Working for a multinational like Dole Food Company, Joe was presented with the opportunity to relocate to Hawaii. Joe and Jean took the plunge and got married in October 1937, 
and then moved immediately to Honolulu, where Joe commenced a job as an operations manager for Dole on one of the large pineapple plantations. Almost six years later, on the 13th of July 1943, they welcomed their first and only child into the world, a baby boy called Daniel Joseph Locken, who soon inevitably became known as Danny. They were ecstatic about the new arrival, who would make their little family unit complete. Joe, Jean and Danny remained in Hawaii throughout World War II, and in 1946 they relocated back to the States, first living in Plattsmouth, Nebraska for seven years, before settling for another six years in Omaha, Nebraska. It was here that Jean opened a dance studio, which proved to be a resounding success in the region. Having a mother who was a talented dancer with her own dance studio, Danny got the dancing bug too. Jean was quick to realise the natural talent that her son had, and she set about turning him into a professional act. Danny's first dance partner was a young guy called Neil Reynolds, and they would perform their dance routines at fairs and hotels in the area. Rather inappropriately, because Danny was white and Neil was black, their act was named The Two Checkers. However, The Two Checkers didn't have a long-lasting and illustrious career due to the racism of the 1950s and the huge amount of segregated venues due to that racism, so bookings for the double act dried up. But this didn't put Danny off. He loved the limelight and he'd made up his mind that a life on the stage was for him, but it did instill in him a deep feeling of injustice and outrage with regards to racial inequality especially when he had seen how his friend had been treated by the entertainment venues simply due to the colour of his skin. Although not a significant part of this story, it's worth highlighting that Danny was a lifelong campaigner for racial equality, which without a doubt demonstrates that he was a compassionate and considerate person. In 1959, Joe, Jean and Danny moved yet again to the new home in Anaheim in Orange County, California. Jean continued with her passion for dance and she opened yet another dance school, which was again a success. Danny enrolled at the Rancho Alamitos High School and he excelled as a student there. He was not only bright from an academic perspective, but he also had excellent abilities in theatre studies and gymnastics. Then, in July 1961, when Danny had turned just 18 years old, his father, Joe, died suddenly. Jean and Danny were left to pick up the pieces of their shattered lives. Losing Joe was a blow for them and they soon realised that losing Joe's income also meant that Danny and Jean were solely reliant on Jean's income from the dance school, so she threw herself into making sure her dance school continued its successful streak. Danny, on the other hand, started to earn some money by throwing himself into acting. It didn't take long for him to land some acting work on TV commercials, before he progressed to small parts in TV shows, like Dr. Kildare. Danny wasn't a particularly tall kid, at only 5 foot 6, and with his relatively small frame, ginger hair and freckles, he was often cast in theatre and TV commercials where he played younger parts, which worked in his favour. In fact, his small size, large talent and superb dancing ability allowed him to get down to the final few contenders for the role of Rolf in the movie version of The Sound of Music starring Julie Andrews. Of course, we know he didn't get that part, but it was clear that this teenager was definitely going places. Soon after graduating high school, Danny decided to follow in his mother's footsteps and he went to New York City. His natural talents on the stage impressed many theatre directors and he secured various parts in travelling theatre productions including The Sound of Music, Gypsy, The Music Man and Tom Sawyer. For the next couple of years Danny's career path continued to soar because he impressed many producers and directors who were keen to work with him. In 1966 he landed the role that he would be best known for the role of Barnaby in the stage version of Hello Dolly. It was a role that he made his own and a role that he truly loved. 
And why wouldn't he love it? He got to play opposite some of the great talents of the time, including Eve Arden and Ginger Rogers. His enthusiasm and energy was infectious, despite sometimes playing the role twice a day, seven days per week. In fact, it was his love for this role that made him stand out when it was announced that Hollywood was creating a film version of Hello, Dolly, which would be directed by Gene Kelly. Gene Kelly was acutely aware of Danny's talent, but he wanted to make sure that his talents could translate to the silver screen, so he made him audition and screen test a total of 13 times. It was inevitable though, Danny won the part, and he got to star in the movie with Barbara Streisand. But to top off Danny's success, he was also awarded a five-year contract with 20th Century Fox, which meant he had to do one movie per year for five years. At the same time that all of this was happening, Danny met and fell in love with a chorus line dancer named Kathy Haas. In 1967, while working in Las Vegas, they got married and when they returned to New York, they moved into a small apartment. During the filming of the movie version of Hello Dolly, Kathy became pregnant, so they moved back to LA, bought a house and in early 1969, their son, Jeremy Daniel, was born. However, in August 1969, Kathy left Danny and took their six-month-old baby son Jeremy with her. She immediately filed for divorce. Losing his wife and his son devastated Danny, but he had commitments to the studio and he couldn't leave. After filming ended for Hello Dolly, Danny wanted a break from California, and he wanted a distraction from his depressing circumstances which were turning him to drink. So he went back to Broadway to play Barnaby, opposite Ethel Merman and Phyllis Diller. During this time, his divorce from Kathy went through, and he started drinking more frequently and more heavily. Danny decided yet again to change things in his life, and escaped the situation by going on tour with Hello Dolly, again continuing his role as Barnaby. He stayed with the nationwide tour until it ended, but at this point, Danny's career was declining, helped quite significantly by his increased use of cocaine. Sadly, at the end of the tour, because of his drinking, his substance abuse and his increased unreliability, he had limited options for work available to him. So he moved back in with his mother Jean at her apartment in Anaheim. In a desperate attempt to get some structure in his life, Danny started assisting Jean at her dance studio. But sadly, this closed in early 1977. Undeterred, Danny got a job as a dance instructor at a different dance studio, and Jean also got another job teaching at another dance studio. Danny was now out as bisexual, and he was living the party lifestyle, but he really wasn't the sparkly-eyed dancing twink that he used to be. He had become a heavy drinker with arrests for DUI, and things had become so bad that he needed rides from his mother or his friends. As always, though, when faced with adversity, Danny was determined to get his life back together and determined to use his talents wisely before they faded. He continued teaching dance classes, but in his spare time he recorded an album and he started writing a play. In mid-1977, Danny and his friend Billy Joe Conway, another dance instructor who worked with his mother, were invited to compete in The Gong Show. The Gong Show was an amateur talent show in America and it was known for having a mixture of serious talent and some absolutely absurd acts. Obviously nowhere near the outrageousness of some of today's talent shows, where the dickhead producers are clearly mocking people with learning needs or social problems. The big day for Danny and Billy Joe arrived on Sunday the 21st of August 1977, and they made their way to the studio where the gong show was being recorded. The format was simple to follow, and Danny and Billy Joe knew what they needed to do. They had to perform in front of a panel of three judges, and if any of the judges thought an act was bad, they would simply stop it by striking a gong. 
Any act that survived without being gonged was given a score by each of the three judges on a scale of 0 to 10. The maximum possible score was 30. On this particular day, and at the end of this particular competition, there was a nail-biting final, and Danny and Billy Joe scored three tens which meant they tied for first place with another act. I'll include a link to their performance in my show notes. A really pleased and proud Jean was in the audience to cheer on her son. When the show had ended, Danny and Billy Joe were on top of the world. They celebrated with some dinner and a martini with Jean. After dinner, Danny asked Jean to drop him off at a gay bar called The Mug in Garden Grove. Danny said he wanted to unwind and play the pinball machine, so Jean dropped Danny off at the bar at 11pm. Jean asked if Danny had money to get home, and he told her, when exiting the car, that he had $5 for the taxi ride back to their place. Jean watched her son proudly as he walked into the bar in his skin-tight dance pants, which were so tight that they had no room for a wallet or any ID. It was the last time that Jean saw Danny alive. Danny called a taxi from the bar at around midnight, but he didn't take it. Instead, he decided to get a ride from a guy that he was chatting to. A guy called Charles Hopkins, who was 34 years old, the same age as Danny. Charles, who was also known as Chuck, but I won't refer to him as Chuck because it sounds like a nice nickname, and, well, fuck this guy, was an Air Force veteran who had been a medical dispatcher for the UCI Medical Center and was, according to police reports, a known homosexual. I wonder if I'm a known homosexual on police reports. What an achievement that would be. When Danny left the bar with Charles, They went back to Charles' place at the Kona Palms Apartments in Anaheim. When Danny entered Charles' apartment, he was immediately made aware of some of Charles' furnishings, including pornography and S&M gear, and more tasteful things, like a portrait of Sophia Loren. Jesus, the 1970s seems so fucking sinister. What happened next is unclear, but several hours later, Charles called the police and told them to send police officers around, because an intruder had tried to rob him. The police arrived at the scene, and there they found poor Danny, stabbed to death. But this wasn't a straightforward self-defence stabbing of an intruder, like Dickhead Charles was claiming. Danny had been stabbed more than 100 times. He was stabbed 12 times on the left side of his back. Two of these stabbings were after he had died. 16 times on the right side of his back. Seven of these were after he had died. 17 stab wounds on his left buttock and 26 to his right buttock, all of them after Danny had died. You get the picture. Danny suffered multiple stab wounds, but Psycho Charles kept stabbing him, even after he had died. I hope the term overkill isn't in poor taste here, but what the actual fuck, Charles? The official cause of death was exsanguination, or he was drained of blood, caused by multiple stab wounds to his lungs and heart. Obviously the police arrested Charles immediately, and started searching his apartment. Amongst the various instruments that they found which had been used to stab Danny, they found quite an explicit book which contained multiple pictures of what they described as male sex torture. But today, this would probably be just a run-of-the-mill S&M book. Either way, the police knew that this book would come in handy for the prosecution as they wanted to include it as evidence to show that Charles had a warped mind because he was into torture. And Danny's death was obviously premeditated by Charles. In the meantime, Jean was very worried about her son 
He hadn't come home from his night out and she was very concerned that he might be injured. As the next day progressed, she started calling various hospitals asking if Danny had been admitted. She continuously received the same response. He wasn't there. Jean started playing out in her mind the last time she had seen him. She had last seen her son on Sunday night after he had jointly won the talent competition. He was in good spirits. He seemed content. What on earth had happened to him? She didn't realise that because he had come directly from the competition and he was wearing his skin-tight dance pants, there was no room for a wallet or any ID. This meant that when Danny was murdered in the early hours of Monday morning, the police had no idea who he was. Sadly, it would also mean that Jean didn't know anything about what had happened to Danny until the police called to her house on Wednesday, two days later to confirm that Danny was dead. They had only identified him using his fingerprints, which were on file from his previous drink-driving arrests. Six days after Charles had murdered Danny in the most brutal and vicious of ways, he was charged with first-degree murder by torture, and he was held on a $200,000 bail in a jail in Orange County. There was no question in anyone's minds that, if Charles was found guilty, which undoubtedly he would be, he would receive the death penalty. Less than three weeks later, a preliminary hearing took place in municipal court, and it was agreed that the trial date would be set for the 9th of January 1978, just four months later. The prosecutors were confident that they would get a conviction. All of the evidence indicated that he had murdered Danny, and they had strong additional evidence in the form of the S&M book that the police had found in Charles' apartment, which acted almost as a script for Danny's murder, or, as the prosecution put it, murder by torture. It was going to be relatively straightforward. It would only be a short wait until Jean saw justice served for her son's death. Unfortunately, the trial which was due to start in January had to be delayed because the deputy public defender was involved in a car accident and he suffered leg injuries. This delay allowed the defence team to identify a considerable issue around the admissibility of some of the evidence, specifically the crucial S&M book. During the delay to the start of the court case, the US Supreme Court rejected the admission of the S&M book as evidence. The simple reason was, the police had failed to get the proper search warrants to search the apartment and ultimately take items from it. The police believed that because they were responding to a call to investigate the death of an intruder, it wasn't necessary to get any search warrants. The lack of search warrants meant that any evidence taken from the apartment was ultimately inadmissible. And that, dear listener, is a prime example of why police training was and continues to be too fucking short. Unfortunately, without the book as evidence to demonstrate that Charles had premeditated Danny's murder, the prosecutors had to determine whether they were going to continue to pursue a charge of first-degree murder or if they would accept a lesser charge. Eventually, in September 1978, eight months after the original trial start date, Charles' trial commenced. It was a trial without a jury, and the outcome and his sentence relied solely on one judge. Charles's version of events were now vastly different, and he testified that, yes, Danny had been at his apartment, but he had left. Charles said that he fell asleep for a short while, and when he woke up later, he was horrified to find Danny's mutilated body in his apartment. He said he was completely confounded as to how Danny's lifeless body had got there. Danny had left his apartment, but now, strangely, 
He was lying dead in Charles's apartment and poor Charles had no idea how that had happened. Jesus, Charles is a prick. The prosecutor was not interested in his bullshit story and continued to push for a murder conviction. But without the S&M book as evidence to show that Charles was into torture, which we know now is just kink-shaming, it was difficult to prove that it was premeditated. In fact, there was no evidence of premeditation at all put forward by the prosecution, and this meant that the murder charge was taken off the cards. Infuriatingly, the judge had to rule that Charles should only be found guilty of voluntary manslaughter, and this meant that he would not be sentenced to death. In fact, his sentence was pitiful. He received only four years in prison. To make you feel even more outraged, Charles was released after two years for good behaviour. A totally disgraceful travesty of justice. Jean, Danny's mother, was crestfallen. She had lost her beloved son, and the guy who killed him received a woefully lenient prison sentence. She was horrified, but she didn't have the energy to fight. She tried to find some semblance of normality by continuing to teach in various dance schools. Jean continued teaching dance until she suffered a series of strokes in 1989. She moved to a medical centre in Fountain Valley, Orange County, and eventually passed away with pneumonia on the 23rd of May 1990, 13 years after Danny had died. Danny's murderer, Charles, died in 2006, aged 63 years old. His official cause of death was a heart attack, but he was also suffering from lung cancer at the time of his death. It's hard to have any sympathy. Danny was only 34 years old when he was brutally murdered. The man who was charged with his crime didn't get the full force of the law thrown at him. Was it due to LGBT plus prejudice? There was very little public outcry over this crime or the subsequent court case. Being sentenced to four years in jail for stabbing someone over 100 times, but being released after two years for good behaviour, is mind-boggling. It's entirely disproportionate to the evilness of the crime. To put it into context, you can get up to two years in prison for simple possession of drugs, but you can get four years for hacking someone to death. It's totally bewildering. Danny is buried in Westminster Memorial Park Cemetery in Orange County. For anyone who wants to pay their respects to him, his grave is number four in Block 29, Section 219. His gravestone is rather understated and it was put there by his mother. It states simply, Beloved son, Daniel J. Locken, 1943-1977. The words of his mother, Jean, haunted me when I was researching this episode. She could see how much performing meant to him. She firmly believed that if he could resurrect his Hollywood career, he would be okay. The problems with the booze and the drugs would leave him. When she was referring to the night that he jointly won the gong show, the night he was murdered, she said, quote, It was a good night for him. He had the old light in his eyes. End quote. He never got the chance to turn his life around. He died six hours later. Did you know that there are 195 countries in the world, and that out of those 195 countries, it's still illegal to be a gay man in 72 of them? Did you know it's still illegal to be a gay woman in 44 of them? And did you know that any same-sex activity in 11 of them could result in a death penalty? Utterly shameful in the year 2021. Why are LGBT plus people perceived to be immoral heathens in those countries? It's because those countries are governed by assholes. The people in charge have the power to change the perception of LGBT plus people in their countries, but they don't. Instead, they actively ask for LGBT plus people to be outed, to be imprisoned, to be brutalised and raped, or to be killed by their families. 
you might think there is very little you can do. There is. Research any LGBT plus equal rights charity and support their causes. Research the projects undertaken by the United Nations to support the advancement of LGBT plus equality and inclusion overseas. There's always something you can do to support the voices of the silenced. You've only got one life, so why not live it by being helpful and kind? Until next time. Mm -hmm.